people come up to me all the time and say, I remember that story your mother wrote for the Manly Daily in 1975 or something, you know, 30 years later, 40 years later. And uh, that's a measure of good journalism, if it actually penetrates and if it's remembered. So much of the rest of what we do is ephemera. So I always wanted to make stories that people would be talking about 30 years later. For generations of Australian journalists, Chris Masters has been the equivalent of America's most iconic investigative reporters. Woodward and Bernstein and Seymour Hirsch rolled into one. And yes, here we are talking about stories he did well over 30 years ago. Hi, I'm Bill Birnbauer, the CEO of Democracy's Watchdogs. Several Chris Masters stories are timeless and fixed for all time in the very best investigative journalism that this country has produced. I'm thinking of the Moonlight State, which exposed political and police corruption in Queensland. French Connections, which showed that the French Secret Service blew up the Greenpeace ship Rainbow Warrior. And the Big League, about judicial corruption in New South Wales. Many journalists today seem to think that they need to be in people's faces, loud and brash. But Chris is a thoughtful, considered and quietly spoken journalist. But, and it's a big but, he's relentless in searching for the truth and extremely brave in telling it. Sadly, his journalism, due to our terrible defamation laws, has meant that he spent more than a decade fighting lawsuits and being bogged down in legal proceedings. Chris is a true giant of Australian journalism. What follows is part one of my interview with Chris on our website, democracieswatchdogs.org. You can watch this interview and also part two. Last week on Four Corners, we accompanied mentoring Team Alpha in Afghanistan as they probed counterinsurgency warfare's invisible front line. I uh, received wounds to my upper left thigh, hip, left hand, and to my face. Yeah, copy that, mate. I'll stop moving the gear on the road. Tonight we go further with Alpha Company into more uncharted territory to the battle for the faith and trust of a brutalised people. Chris, you've done some of the most iconic stories in investigative journalism in Australia, yet you never trained as a journalist. Well, I think I did, but there wasn't a lot of formal training in, in my day. You know, a, a lot of people like myself, that, that cohort that came into the industry in the late 60s, you, you basically got a, uh, a cadetship, you know, and my cadetship was working in country towns, uh, working for uh, ABC regional radio stations. And I actually look back on it and think it's, it was the best training you could have uh, in investigative journalism in particular, because you live in these little places and you wake up in the morning and nothing's happened. So what do you do? You have to find ways of digging up information and you wake up the next day and nothing's happened again. And uh, it t teaches you to get out there. I mean, people underrate the value of journalism. I mean, if, if we weren't there, who else would do this sort of work? And 
There are closed doors everywhere. Um, historians can simply call up the files, you know, but we can't do that and we have to chase primary evidence and we just have to find somebody who will answer the phone. I, I think that experience also was great for calibrating the moral compass in that I was so much in touch with the people I was reporting on, you know, I met them face to face. I had to I had to, to put up with their uh, getting angry at me the next day, you know, because I'd run into them in the street, which is the bully, coward, shock jocks never have to do that. They belt up people from afar. They never have to look them in the eye. So I think it, it, it developed a sense of responsibility as well, which is really important. And I think another virtue was that that country town experience puts you in touch with a whole range of people. You know the town mayor, you know everybody and you're used to talking to people with tattoos you know and uh, there is elitism in journalism and i've seen it for myself i've seen uh, journalists who are awkward uh, about getting down and talking to people who haven't been to university like they've been and uh, so I think, actually, I had a terrific training. I also had a great mother who was a journalist. Don't forget that. I mean, I was uh, learning journalism from the moment I could read and write, you know, because it was there at my kitchen table every day. Mum was a humble... This is Olga Masters, who went on to become a, a great world-renowned author. Uh, but, but her roots were also in country towns, working on regional and suburban newspapers... And I'll tell you the great thing about Mum that I, that, I, uh, that I also feel is important in my career. People come up to me all the time and say, I remember that story your mother wrote for the Manly Daily in 1975 or something, you know, 30 years later, 40 years later. And uh, that's a measure of good journalism, if it actually penetrates and if it's remembered. So much of the rest of what we do is ephemera. So... I always wanted to make stories that people would be talking about 30 years later. It seems very different from what journalists do, a lot of journalists do today, which is really sit in an office in the city, in comfort, and on the telephone. Mm. Um, what do you make of that? Is, is that impacting on the quality of journalism? Or Absolutely, yeah. I, I think that uh, if you're in the office, it, you're office-based, you're the only tool of exploration is essentially a telephone you're not really chasing stories you're chasing headlines and you're not developing narrative skills because you're not picking up the personality of the people and the story the character of the story you get out there and uh, you knock on a door and you're invited in and you see what's on the mantelpiece and you start to sort of colour in the story because you're picking up on the personality, you're picking up, you're developing narrative skills. It's really important to be able to form the narrative as well. And I don't think it's as easy to do uh, if you're on the telephone. I'll give you a good example of that. I did the Rainbow Warriors story, which is an inter international exclusive. And... Uh, I was in New Zealand and I was chasing it down and nobody th thought the French Secret Service was behind the bombing of the Rainbow Warrior at this stage. A, a Greenpeace ship. Greenpeace ship, yeah. And uh, I was talking to a, a police officer who was investigating the matter. He wasn't giving up very much at all to, to a journalist. But, you know, I'd been wearing out shoe leather. I'd been doing the classic journalism, knocking on hire car places and, you know, talking to people who'd seen 
suspicious things occurring around the bays and the back blocks of the North Island of New Zealand. And I said to him, do you know what? I'm beginning to think that the French Secret Service might be behind this. He didn't say anything, but he just looked at me. And the look on his face was one of, he agreed with me. You know, that gave me enormous confidence to go forward. Now, you don't get that over a telephone. So it's really part of the jigsaw of the whole story. What's on the mantelpiece, what a raised eyebrow is. Mm. Um, do you think there was more of that type of journalism previously than there is today? I think the, the great irony of the digital revolution and the access to information over the internet is such that we've, we've in some respects, closed ourselves off to the, 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 the traditional avenue of, of getting a story, which was, you know, getting out there, uh, getting on the road, uh, uh, meeting people, um, knocking on doors. Uh, I think it's easier to stay indoors, but I'm hardly persuaded that um, that's the best way to, to dig up stories. Indeed, one of the things I used to like about being at Four Corners was you never saw the reporters. They had little cubicles, little offices, etc., but they were almost never there at their desk. You know, they were always out there. Mm -hmm. Your first big story at Four Corners uh, back in 1983 was the, uh, the Big League. Can you tell us a bit about what that story was? Well, it was interesting in that um, I came into the job for Four Corners having worked in the rural department of the ABC. So I had a kind of an unusual entry, you know, but most of the people who came into the flagship current affairs program worked their way through the news industry. I had been a rural reporter um, and working in the regional communities and uh, and then coming to, to Sydney and working on documentary type programs like A Big Country, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that um, I'd learned some important filmmaking skills. You know, Four Corners is a hybrid mm. investigative journalism documentary program. Uh, so it was helpful to me to have learned how to, to make stories with, with cameras. I sort of felt like I had something of a natural aptitude for working with a camera because I was a, a keen amateur photographer myself. Mm. And, you know, as with a lot of good investigative journalism, you start out here and you end up over there. You know, you don't know where you're going to go, where your research is going to take you. So a story that looked at perspective, it, it actually began not as a story about rugby league, but as about, um, about corrupt payments in, mm -hmm. in amateur sport. Mm -hmm. But that ended up taking us to a story about judicial corruption because an allegation emerged that the head of the rugby league had... had uh, behaved uh, corruptly and that when his case came before the courts, there was uh, more shenanigans uh, to get him off the hook. And, um, you know, uh, we, we chased it down and the very first story I did turned into a, a Royal Commission, the Street Royal Commission. Peter Manning, I have to say, was did a terrific amount of work. I was really lucky that my producer had had absolutely everything that I didn't have, you know, which is experience. And journalism is also about good judgment. And Peter was one of those people who'd been around typewriters forever, and he just had a great nose for for what what you should be looking at and where you should be focusing. So we were a, a good team, and uh, we got to the end of that. And Jonathan Holmes um, famously said to me, "Oh well." 
gee, Chris, first story, you know, Royal Commission, um, don't ever expect that to happen again. And I said to him, hmm, not so sure. Really? Yeah, <laughs> okay. I, I, I had more confidence. I, I okay. think the great thing was that, you know, I've often said my good friends like Nick McKenzie, etc., took aim high and yep. tell them what they didn't know yesterday. And uh, that, that was a, a very good example of that. And I sort of saw the formula unfold in front of me and I thought, okay. I really did think, I, I think I could probably do this again. So is it quite common, do you think, that you start looking at this particular issue and you end up somewhere else? Absolutely. Follow the story? That's so the way it should be. Flexible, yeah. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. locked in. No, no, no. And, and it was a difficulty too because your executive producer would commission something that they thought was a good idea and you'd get out there and you'd find the story wasn't moving in that direction at all. But you're following the truth, it, you're, you're hunting it down, and it just gets better. Follow the truth. But, mm. but your EP will think, no, but that's not the story I sent you out to do, Chris. And I'd say, well, you know, I'm sorry, but the story you sent me out to do isn't actually there, but I found a much, much better one. Uh, you you, you realise what you can do. So, so, you know, with that power comes a lot of responsibility too and a lot of uh, pain and heartache. I mean... Neville Rann was the Premier at that time mm -hmm. and came out and uh, condemned the program. And did you also find that other people were siding with him oh, in yeah. some way? No, Maybe yeah. Labor supporters? Absolutely. Or... I remember uh, uh, people always presume that the, the ABC is this sort of nest of lefties and, uh, and I had people come up to me saying, how dare you, you know, how dare you take on a, a Labor icon? And I thought, well, you're missing the point, you know. We, I don't think of uh, journalism as being of the left or the right, you know. I, I, I think it's about working as close you, as you can towards... A, a, a truth, a defensible truth, and no matter where it takes you. Um, I've read that um, you have an angry honesty. Um, <laughs> is that true? Yes, it is true. Uh, you know, when I was working on the, the Moonlight State story in Queensland, uh, it, I really became angry. I became angry that good, decent people who joined the police force because they wanted to do the right thing by the community were being appropriated, press-ganged into a career working for the other side. And For the benefit of the students and others who don't know what the story was about, maybe you... It was about institutional corruption in Queensland, right. yeah. It was, a, it was about uh, essentially police uh, corruption, but there was political corruption behind that, and uh, it led to the Fitzgerald inquiry and the demise of the Bjelke-Peterson government, which had been omnipotent but infamously corrupt. And it also led to the jailing of the uh, uh, police commissioner at the time, Sir Terence Lewis. Queensland's boast of stable rule by one of the nation's longest serving premiers could be shared by Queensland's vice kings. The two knights, Sir Joe and Sir Terence, also have stable rule in common. In past, Lewis came to the job 11 years ago in controversial circumstances, very much against the recommendation of his preceding commissioner, Ray Whitrod. Heard some suggestions of impropriety by Commissioner Lewis. I don't want to answer that question. There is another side to the Sunshine State. 
syndicates not too interested in letting too many foreigners in. Because while there's only four, there's a gold mine. If there was 40, there'd be a bit of silver, that's about it. And that's the way they work. And at the moment, they've got a sewn up, and the police are happy. The prostitute told us she worked for this man. His name is Hector Happeter, sometimes known as Hector Hall. Our research shows that Happeter and some associates have the largest share of the massage parlour and escort business in southern Queensland. It's been suggested that you've, at some stage in your career, been on the take, that you've been a bag man. Well, it, it's certainly all foreign to me, the, the, the validity of this. The government brought Lewis in from the cold of Charleville, where he'd occupied a relatively humble post of inspector second class. Could you explain a little bit how you got that job? No, I'd like you to tell me, actually, if anybody knows, because... He has been commissioner now for more than a decade, and it's this period and this administration about which tonight's program raises questions. You're not answering them, are you? The allegations, Aren't I just, directly. Yeah, well, I'll give you a bit of a pace today, young fellow. You'll be out of a job tomorrow. Our report is hardly the first to contain allegations of police corruption in Queensland. The charges are invariably met with official disbelief. This was the case when two policemen spoke of corruption in the force on ABC television in 1982. I, listen, I think I'd like to take a lot more notice of uh, the Commissioner, Mr Lewis, than these gentlemen. With due respect. With due respect. There is little that's subdued or discreet about Brisbane prostitution. While police and politicians can't find them, the public can't miss them. The parlours cling conspicuously to the fringe of the city and spread out into the suburbs. I mean, essentially, when you begin a project like that and you're hearing about um, corruption, your witnesses are disgruntled police, people who work on the fringes of the criminal community. So, you know, it's there's a, there's a real credibility issue and. Uh, Break his camera and break his mouth too, was the order. One of the three bouncers obliged, fortunately for our crew, only with the former request. We just worked our way forward and forward and forward until eventually I did get that document that, that demonstrated there was a link between corrupt police and, uh, and senior figures in the, in the underworld. The apologists for the way the prostitution industry works in Queensland promote the myth that here at least prostitution and drugs are divorced. But like everywhere else, the marriage of the flesh trade and the drug trade is an unhappy reality. Those same apologists will justify protecting illegal gambling and prostitution because it's comparatively benign and inevitable. But there is no justification for the protection of the drug trade. In the last month, I've spoken to a young policewoman who says that on the walls of the station they write NRMA, nothing really matters anymore. I've spoken to a detective constable who insists that 99% of police are totally honest and near to tears tries to explain to me that the problem is they simply can't rock the boat. We just have to accept the fact that they're not going to trust us. They're probably not going to trust us to begin with. And uh, we have to, the only way to obtain trust is to is to be trustworthy. And I think that over the years, uh, saw many occasions when people who 
didn't really want to public publicly cooperate ended up cooperating, ended up um, coming on camera, as essentially because we demonstrated that we were prepared to do the job. Um, and we were prepared to stick our own neck out. Nigel Powell also worked in the valley as a plainclothes detective constable in the licensing branch. He later became a police prosecutor. I mean, theoretically, they were touchable. Theoretically, we could have gone out there and gained evidence. Given um, resources and given time, um, I've no doubt that we could have gained sufficient evidence to prosecute all the principals. I've spoken to a detective sergeant who says that to survive in this place, you have to discover neutral territory where you see no evil and hear no evil, particularly if it's evil within. You know, that sort of thing uh, made, me, made me very angry. And, and I, I think it was true for a, a lot of the stories that I, that I worked on. And I guess the final word should go to a retired senior policeman who says, what's the point? I spent my whole career bashing my head against a brick wall. It made no difference. The public really don't care anyway. And in the end, the crooks win. Their lives had become miserable. And, you know, the state oversaw this, not only tolerated it, but encouraged it. You said um, during the moonlight state, um, quote, almost killed you. Yeah. Uh, what, what did you mean by that? Well, it was my death by a thousand courts. I mean, the story itself was hard to do. I think I began it in about September 86, and uh, I didn't get it to air until, you know, like May uh, 87. I had a privilege, of course, you know, in investigative journalism. It's so temporal, and all journalism should be investigative, but investigative journalists tend to have more time. Mm. Uh, and where, where do you think that comes from, that, that sort of anger at that situation, maybe the injustice of it. Um. Yeah, well, I think we've got a, a sense of justice in, in all of us. I'm, you know, I think, I, think I, I was lucky. I was born into a fairly progressive family. Dad was a, a school teacher and mum was a, a local journalist and, and they had a good, strong sense of national natural justice, that, which was imbued in their children. I don't know that you know any of us really knew it at the time, but we had this kind of mm. master's apprenticeship in, in good citizenship. You know, I still say this, that good journalism is essentially about uh, good citizenship. You're um, dealing with people who are already demoralised, so that it, it has a demoralising impact on you. And then you put the program to air, and then uh, you're challenging a very powerful institution, and mm. they sort of hit back hard. They hit back hard at your witnesses. There are defamation writs that are coming through the door. Um, you're getting punished by other media. Um, and then I had 13 years of litigation that came out of that. You know, we were demonstrably correct. There was clear corruption and we, we clearly uncovered it. Uh, but um, being right doesn't <laughs> mean you're going to escape a lot of pain. And I wouldn't have thought, even today, you know, I don't feel good about it. It was a, it was a famous piece of journalism, a great piece of journalism. And it wasn't just me either. Peter Manning was the executive producer. Uh, Sean Hoyt did a great job as a producer. Deb Whitmont was was a, did some important research that helped uncover that document. Um, but, you know, we got punished, absolutely. So through defamation? Yeah, yeah. We, it, the, the, 
the uh, the main case against us dragged on for 13 years. It was first heard in the Supreme Court in Queensland, um, then it was appealed, uh, then it went to the High Court. The High Court determined that there be a retrial um, and then, you know, like 13 years later, it staggered to an end. We'd won every round, but you don't win in defamation matter. No. So this hung over you as you were trying to do other stories? It was exhausting. It was absolutely demoralising. I felt like my career had been hijacked, that I'd become a professional defendant. Uh, we ran a qualified privilege defence, which meant that, you know, you think about it, we were trying to prove that police were actively involved in criminal corruption. They're police, they're extremely powerful, they're very, very good at covering up their own tracks. Unlike police, we don't have the power to compel testimony, so we're way, way, way uh, behind. Uh, what I, you know, when it came to proving the truth of police involvement in criminal conduct, that was extremely difficult. So we ran a rare defence, a qualified privilege defence, which essentially said, Clearly, ABC and Four Corners were operating in the public interest um, and they were operating responsibly, which meant that, that I became the defendant and the job of the other side was to tear me to bits and demonstrate that I'd behaved irresponsibly, uh, recklessly, etc., etc. You know, I, I reckon it nearly drove me crazy. You know, I, I thought that uh, there was a time when and you feel so lonely. I'd become an enemy to myself. I became sort of obs obsessed and so miserable. I, I reckon I, I, um, I, what helped me was coming to the recognition that um, there was no point in feeling sorry for myself. Hi, it's Bill Bernbauer, back with you. If you enjoyed that podcast and want to hear more interviews with top investigative journalists, go to democracieswatchdogs.org and locate the podcasts tab. On the site, you can watch video interviews with all the journalists featured in these podcasts. You can subscribe to our podcast and also to our newsletter for alerts about forthcoming interviews and our latest news. And please help us produce more interviews by supporting our work. As a registered non-profit organisation, we depend entirely on your support. Just go to democracieswatchdogs.org, press the donate button and give us whatever you can afford. Every bit helps. It all goes into production and is greatly appreciated. Thanks for listening and bye for now.